Good to see you, Kyle, for tonight. If this is your first time here, we'd just like to thank you for coming uh, and welcome you to, to being part of what we're doing. And uh, we are a family of, of people who love Jesus and love hanging out together. And so thanks so much for being here. We're glad that you're here no matter what walk of life you come from. Uh, whether you're a college student or you're a young adult uh, working in town, uh, we're glad that you're here. So thanks so much for being here tonight. Uh, since we are having our missions meeting this week, I thought, well, what better timing to uh, talk about our missions meeting than to bring a, you know, what, what better way to talk about missions than to bring a missionary uh, to Chi Alpha. We have a privilege tonight of hearing from a man who uh, had has done uh, 20 years of missionary work over in Cambodia. Uh, he started doing missions in 1993 over in Cambodia. Uh, how many people were alive in 1993? Barely. <laughs> Could all go home in one car. All right. Uh, so uh, uh, Mr. Mark Bowman is, Pastor Mark Bowman is a, is a missionary veteran, and we are going to get to hear his heart tonight, hopefully some stories. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I don't know about you guys, but when I, whenever I get to listen to someone who uh, took the Great Commission very literally and went into all the earth to preach the gospel and to make disciples of all nations, um, they like instantly become one of my heroes. And so uh, can we give a warm welcome, honoring welcome? Can we stand as M Pastor Mark comes to the microphone to, to speak with us? I'm going to sit. How many of you have heard me speak before? A few of you. Boy, I didn't realize you were so many guys from Grace. There's a bunch. Um, Luke, I see you back there. What I want to do, um, I, I want to avoid preaching to you. I just want to talk to you. Um, the first time, um, I ended up, we, I started out in the, joined the Air Force when I was a young punk. I did it because I basically got kicked out of college. That's the truth. I, I got involved in academic, um, I say recreational pharmaceuticals, let me say it that way. And the, the, the uh, University of uh, Michigan State University decided that I was not worthy of being a student at their university, and they asked me to leave. So I got involved in all sorts of stupid things. I got in trouble, and I actually had a full-ride scholarship. I lost the whole thing down the drain. So I got kicked out of the military. I mean, I got kicked out of the uh, university, and uh, basically I decided I was going to join the Air Force because I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't go home. So I lied my way into the Air Force. I told them I'd never done drugs, I'd never did anything bad, and, and I had never been arrested, so they didn't know any better. So I signed my name on a piece of paper, and they foolishly accepted me and put me off into the military, where I got shipped to Montana, and I ended up getting a top-secret security clearance and worked on nuclear weapons. <laughs> so obviously, somebody didn't do their homework. <laughs> so... I think all my roommates in college lied for me because they didn't want to admit they were a part of the problems, too. So um, anyway, so 
I got in the military and I got involved in more problems. I had more drugs and alcohol and I, I did a lot of stupid things and I got in trouble there. It wasn't long before my boss pulled me aside one day and he said to me, Mark, you're not going to make it. We're going to get rid of you. We're going to kick you out. And that, that real, I realized that if I wasn't going to make it in the military, I would probably be a dead or in prison someday because I had problems that just consumed me. And that's another story. I won't share that. Anyway, I, I, a friend of mine that I worked with invited me to church, and I went to church, and I gave my life to the Lord. I was so desperate, and I just said, God, I, I don't know what else to do, but I've screwed everything else up. I, I don't help me. And, I, and the Lord transformed my life. And I basically went back. To, I had spent uh, 10 years in the Air Force. I managed to survive without getting kicked out. And then I uh, went back to college and got an electrical engineering degree. And uh, I had married by that time. And so I went back to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, far enough away that they didn't know about my previous, <laughs> my past. <laughs> so I went to a different university to get my, my degree. Anyway, I took a job in central Wisconsin. And we were living in the area about a year. And my son was born. And we went to church on a Sunday morning. And a missionary came and spoke at our church. And he just made a comment. He said, he said, we have an orphanage in Cambodia, and sometimes we need people to come and help us at that orphanage. And my wife leaned over to me and said, oh, man, I would love to do something like that. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, what? You know? And my wife said, We're, we need to go talk to that man. We're interested. And I'm like, we are? I'm just like, I can't believe she's saying this. And, and so... I'm kind of shocked that she's so forward because that's not my wife. And so I chased this guy down after the church service, and I said, can you talk to me about Cambodia? And so he said, we really like to have people go there for one year because it's a long way to go. It's a lot of money. And he said, we just want you to come and help. And, and so he said, but I'll tell you what. He said, I want you to pray about it for two weeks. And he said, I'm going to call you in two weeks, and if you're still interested, I'll send you the application. And so two weeks later, he called, and I, and I couldn't believe it, but I knew it in my heart. This was what God wanted us to do. And so we quit our jobs. We, my wife's an audiologist. She has her master's degree. We quit our jobs. We had already bought a house by that time. My son was six months old, and I packed up my son. I rented out my house. I put everything I owned into storage, and my friends were like, you're going to quit your job? And I'm like, yeah, I, I just think God wants me to do this. And so... We packed up and we flew to Cambodia. And when we got there, the missionary did not tell me the whole story. Come to find out, the, the country was going through a war. It was a civil war. And so the first indication that something was amiss was when we got off the plane, there were soldiers with machine guns. And they had to escort us from the plane to the hangar just to, so that nobody could, we wouldn't get shot. I mean, it's only 200 yards. And there's soldiers with machine guns in full battle gear. And they're escorting us from, the from this airplane to the hangar, which is a Quonset hut. That's all there was at the time. And there was that weird sense of like, oh, my gosh, what have I got myself into? And when we got into the country, then he, he said, I, I need you to know that the, there's a civil war going on. And whole parts of the country are literally off limits because they're so dangerous that none of our missionaries will go there. And so we literally walked into a country that was in absolute chaos. 
And I, I can't tell you what that was like to be in a place where nothing works. The power was out for weeks at a time. There was no telephones. All the factories had been shot up and, and destroyed. The people by the, literally the thousands were roving around trying to find food to eat and they were moving from place to place, uh, going through the city, uh, looking through the garbage. Uh, there was um, the poor, the destitute, the maimed people who had stepped on landmines. They estimate that there was about a half of a million landmines in Cambodia and they were all over the country. Some of them were in the city. There was actual minefields in the city. They had big skull and crossbones signs all over the place. And so whole parts of the country were considered so dangerous you didn't get, out of your, off, the, you didn't get off the road or you didn't get off the beaten path. You, you didn't dare travel anywhere near out in the countryside because for fear that you get your leg blown off. And so it was very common to see people with limbs missing. I saw a little boy, he had picked up a, a landmine. He didn't know what it was, and it blew his arms clean off. And all he had was little stubs. And so we um, were in the capital city uh, during that time. And, and I, I really don't, I really didn't know. It's like, I, I, how, what did I get myself into? I just I knew that God wanted me to do this, but I really had no idea what I got myself into. Well, fast forward, and um, I ended up, my wife and I ended up taking over an orphanage, that orphanage that they talked about. And we literally, we got in the country, um, it was on the sec second, I won't go into the details, but we had arrived in the country, and they gave us the keys, and they said, we'd only been in the country a few days, and we said, we, we have decided that you guys are going to take the orphanage. And so I inherited an orphanage of 143 children and 19 staff, and I can speak zero Cambodian language. And I, I, I just literally came in the door, and I remember thinking to myself, what have I done? How did I get myself into this mess? I had never had anybody ever work for me in my entire life, and now I have 19 Cambodians who, who the, I'm their boss, and I have 143 children. And I had kids whose parents had been murdered, committed suicide, um, died of malaria, typhoid, tuberculosis, hepatitis, um, kids that died of AIDS. Um, all of, uh, we had parents whose kids, uh, kids whose parents died of AIDS. Um, we had kids come in the door whose limbs were missing. They had no arm or no leg, or they couldn't see. They were blinded, or we had a. Uh, a boy who had some syndrome, and I never figured out what happened. He was some bizarre thing. And we had kids who had so many problems and diseases that they literally came in the door, and the instant I looked at them, I realized they weren't going to last a week, not even a week. They're going to be dead. And we would take them straight to the hospital. And the hospitals there were so primitive that they didn't have electricity. And the medical doctors there, um, many of them had graduated from medical school, and they had never physically touched a real person uh, up until they were getting ready to graduate because they didn't have any facilities. They didn't even have machines to do x-rays. They didn't have some of the most basic things there. And so we, we would take kids to the hospital and the doctor would misdiagnose them regularly. And I just got to the point where I didn't believe anybody. And so we would, uh, we would try to keep them alive sometimes and, uh, 
um, they didn't make it. And, uh, and, and when the whole year, all these years that I ran that orphanage, whenever a little boy or girl died, uh, no one ever came and asked me what happened to that girl or boy. No government official ever asked me, where are they? How come their name's not on the list? No, there was no death certificate. There was no coroner's report. There was no one in authority who ever came and asked me. I literally uh, took them out into the field with my, some of my staff, and we dug a hole, and we buried them. And, uh, and when you're doing it, you think to yourself, can I do this? Is this even legal? But there was no government. The government was, had been fighting for control uh, of the country, and one part of the government was fighting and killing off the other part, and so you never knew who was in charge at any one time. And uh, the missionaries that I worked with, we were very tight because we had to be. We were so bonded because there was no, there was no communication with the outside world. I had to drive three hours one way to get my mail. Uh, we were the only native English-speaking people in the city for years. And so we literally um, tried to keep those kids alive. And, and, the, and the, that whole experience, I used to think, Lord, isn't there somebody more qualified than me to do this? How come you have me doing this? And um, I just want you to understand some things. When the kids came in the door, you could, I can always usually tell by the look on their face, it's kind of the, there's a, a, kind of the depth of the things that they've been through. Sometimes, sometimes if the, in the Cambodian culture, it's a Buddhist nation. And when a family member dies, the, all the relatives get together and they have a big uh, funeral. And what they would do is that they would, um, they would literally divvy up the children. And they would say, okay, these three, uh, usually the boy they would like to use to watch uh, water buffalo and the girl, they would, the oldest girl they would have uh, work around the house. And then if there was four or five children, the youngest two or three, they would usually say, well, who wants to take them? And the people were so desperate and they were so hungry and food was so hard to get that they would often just say, well, we don't want these. And all the family would look around at each other until nobody was willing to take them. And then they would say, okay, let's take them to the orphanage. And so sometimes every week people would bring me children and they would come in the door and they would sit on the bench that we had and a woman would come in and she would sit down and she would say, explain the situation. And she said, right in front of these little kids, and she would say, I'm the aunt, uh, my sister's one, these are her kids. And she said, uh, we had the funeral and no one wanted these children, so we brought them here. And the look on their face, I'll never forget, because they have such a despondent look of absolute desperation. And that moment where they have they're longing for somebody to say, you're important to me. And I remember looking in the face and they have such a stone drawn out face because every person that they've ever known has said, we don't want you, you're not important to us. And so we would bring them into the orphanage and I watched them run around the orphanage. And at first, the first few days that they're there, they usually have lost their ability to even laugh. They're just stone faced. And after a few days, I watched them run around with the other kids because everybody there, that's, they're all in the same boat. They're all orphans. 
And through the course of time, I watch them run around and they play and they laugh and they start to just go through what it means to be a kid again. And we have kids come in the door and sometimes they're so hungry that they literally will pack their pockets full of food because they're not convinced that somebody will feed them the next day. And the kids in the orphanage will, will, will say, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And, and they said, well, I'm afraid I won't have anything to eat tomorrow. And they'll say, oh, you don't have to worry. You'll have food to eat here. And uh, so usually if they gave cookies and stuff like that, they would, pop, they would pop, fill their pockets. I remember one time, a woman, she was a prostitute, and we tended to get a lot of children of prostitutes. Usually they would get AIDS. The, man, the men would often go to Thailand, fishermen, and they would get AIDS from the prostitutes in Thailand, and they would come back, and then they would give it to their, their wife. Uh, sometimes the, uh, the other prostitutes in the area would have AIDS, and, that, and usually what would happen is the hospital nearby would contact us and say, you need to come. There's a woman in the hospital. She's been a prostitute, and she's going to die. And she would have a little baby. And I remember one time um, that we went to the hospital, and there was a woman, and she was uh, the hospital. If you don't have money, the hospital um, leaves you outside. You're not allowed to even enter the hospital. They left her outside on the, on the cement underneath the stairs behind the hospital. And she was laying on the cement, and she was just a skeleton. And she had a little boy. And I noticed when um, I looked at the boy, there was a hole in his back where an infection had eaten a hole clean, clean through to his spine. And uh, she was just, she was going to die. I could see it. And she had full-blown AIDS. And um, I talked to her a little bit, and I said to her, I, I will take your son. Um, please. I promise you. I will take care of him. And uh, she handed me her son, and she smiled. It was the only thing she had in life that she was proud of. And she handed me her son. His name was, I called him Luke. I named so many kids at the orphanage, I can't tell you how many kids come in with no name. And so we just named him. We called him Luke. And uh, it was so great to watch him. She died about a week and a half later. And we shared the gospel with her and tried to take care of her, but she didn't make it. And Luke grew up in the orphanage, and just watching him grow up and play and with the other kids, it was just priceless. Another time I was out in a village, there's a place called uh, Omui. It's a, it's a village, it's called the New Village. And we went out there and a pastor was preaching the gospel in that particular area and he pulled me aside and he said, there's a woman that's got full-blown AIDS and she's going to die real soon. And, um, and you need to go out there, she's got some children. And so we went out there and they had, it looked like a little, maybe a eight feet by four feet little uh, shack. And it was, the walls were sewn together rice bags with thatched roof on the top, and it was about a foot and a half off the ground, and she was laying there, and she was just a skeleton. Like she was really sick. And I went over to talk to her, and I, I said to her, um, you know, I, you have children? And she said, yes. And I said, uh, please let me take your children to the orphanage. And so I said, I'll be back in the morning tomorrow. And I said, I, her children were gone. They were out foraging for food. And I said, uh, 
please don't let them go anywhere tomorrow. I'll come back and I'll, I'll pick them up. So the next day I came back and, and she had a little boy and a girl. And the girl was older. And, and um, I talked to her a little bit and I explained to her what the orphanage was like. And, um, and I, the, the kids were just skinny and their clothes were dirty. And you could tell that they had, that's all they did was forage for food all day long and beg. And I put her children in the back of my car. And I'll never forget when I closed the car door, I was looking through the driver's window into the face of that woman. And I just suddenly realized when she looked back at me that she had just given her children to a complete stranger. And I couldn't imagine what was going through her mind. And I said to her, I promise you, I will take care of your children. I promise you. And I'll never forget as I drove off and I took her children to the orphanage and, and uh, we took her kids and we have to, usually the kids have worms really bad and then they have lice. Their hair is usually so packed full of lice that we, sometimes we have to literally cut all the hair off because I can't get rid of the lice. It's just so thick. And we helped them out and gave them some food, took them into the kitchen and, and um, uh, about a month not even a month, about two weeks, three weeks later, that pastor came back and told me, he said, you need to tell those children that the mom died. And so I brought them over to me, and I said, I, I have some bad news for you. I said, your, your mother died. And, and I'll never forget the look on her face. The, little, the girl and the boy were there, but the girl, she just looked at me. She said, oh, that was it. No expression, no sense of loss. There was nothing there. And about... Four months later, uh, during the holiday season, any of the kids who have relatives, if they have uncles, aunts, grandmas, anybody that is somehow distant related to them, we allow them to come and to take those kids back home for a few days for a kind of a visit to their home village. And maybe about half the kids in the orphanage have somebody that they know from that home village, uncles, aunts, grandmas, or whatever. And so we allow them to go back and to connect with them. And and as the kids were leaving and people were coming to take other kids away, that little girl, her name was Coit. And Coit looked at me and she looked at those kids leaving the orphanage and she said to me, Papa, all the kids call me Papa. She said to me, Papa, no one will ever come for me. And she was right. Nobody ever recognized. And I never figured out where she came from. I never knew any history. And all the years that she grew up in the orphanage, her and her brother, nobody ever came for them. But every year... I had kids like you come to the orphanage every year. I made it my mission to get people to come and help and volunteer at that orphanage. And so every year, in either churches around America or often, I can't tell you how many groups I brought from Grace Christian School, we would bring groups of high schoolers or college kids. I've had a ton of kids come. And many of them would stay sometimes a few weeks, sometimes a few months. I've had girls stay uh, a year, uh, quite a few of them, and I had one stay four years. And they come and they help and they spend time with the kids at the orphanage. And I can tell you and I can promise you, it's impossible for me to administer to and help and invest in 143 kids. It's impossible. And so we like to have visitors come and spend time with the kids. The kids, we, we, make it, we work really hard to teach them English so that when visitors come and foreigners come, you can spend time with them. And 
and hang out with them. And man, I would literally, I go get the foreigners in the capital city. So it's a three hour drive one way to the capital and drive up to the capital city and uh, pick up uh, the uh, groups. And I've had college kids. Uh, in fact, I had a Chi Alpha group come from Milwaukee once, a whole group. I think I was like 14 of them. Anyway, I went, uh, so I had a whole groups come uh, many times, and I would pick them up on this big van, 15 passenger van, and drive down to the orphanage, and the kids knew I was bringing people. I would tell them, like I said, I'm going to the capital city to pick up some people, some visitors. And uh, so they were just giddy with excitement. They love having visitors come. And so I would show up in the van, open the van door, and <laughs> but when I arrive at the orphanage, it's a huge compound. It's about three and a half acres. It's nine buildings. And when I, this massive steel door, and when I open this massive steel door, there is this army of children standing on the other side of this door. And they're just beside themselves with so excited. And of course, the foreigners, they're wasted. They're, they've been traveling for 20 some hours. They're, they're just spent. You know, and plus, you get on the plane, when you leave here and you go plane after plane after plane after plane, it seems like it's an eternity. And then you land in Cambodia and it's 99 plus and it's 100% humidity. You, they just wilt. I mean, they just come apart. Especially Alaskans, they just wilt. <laughs> anyway, we pull up to the orphanage and I open that door and they and they they and the, they get out and I and the kids just stand there. There's that pregnant moment of pause. Everybody just waits. And I will say to them in their language, just grab somebody. And they will literally race up and grab them, <laughs> physically drag them off. And in seconds, there's nobody there. Zoom, they're gone. And uh, the kids at the orphanage, we have them raise pigs. They had ducks, geese, chickens, guinea fowl, quail. We had gardens and all these critters that, I, that helped the kids start raising all these critters because they needed to earn money. And they, it was kind of fun to watch them take care of animals. And so the first thing they do is literally grab them and say, I want to show you my pig. And they I want to show you my a dog. I brought dogs in from all over the, the Asia to sell to foreigners. No, we didn't eat them. We sold them to foreigners. And so the kids would literally run up there and just tackle them and grab them by the arm and race off and literally be transformed by the the knowledge that somebody would travel across the planet and that they were important enough that they would come and spend time with them. I can't tell you how huge that is. Through the course of time, watching God send people to invest in them, it has been my joy to watch God raise them up. And through the course of time, my wife and I literally had to start a new ministry in the capital city. First, we, I started a, a, a school because the kids didn't have a place to go to school. So I started a Christian school, K through 12. And all the kids ended up going to school. And then they, when they graduated, they wanted to go to college. And so I had 33 kids in college at one time. So I had to travel all over the United States raising the funds to put them to college. And I did that for six years. I had 33 kids in college every single year. And when they, some would graduate, new ones would come in. And so I was constantly bringing kids to the capital city. So we moved uh, into the capital city to help them to transition and to go to college. And, and I basically handed over that ministry of the orphanage to another missionary couple. 
and then the same thing with the school. I gave that over to kind of work on helping the kids get to college. And we did that for the six years. My wife and I have married off so many kids. I can't tell you how many weddings I've done. I've been dad. My wife has been mommy. Um, twice we were mom and dad on both sides of the aisle. Kids, the kids married each other, and so they didn't have any mom and dad. So we were the mom and dad on both sides. It was kind of fun. And so I can't tell you how many children that we have married off and that have grown up and now are involved. I watched the Lord transform them. They are involved in ministry. Many of them are pastors, pastors' wives. Two of them are doctors. Um, uh, they've gone to, God has, I literally had a girl go into the medical, she went to medical school. And uh, you have to be, ex first of all, medical school is expensive in Cambodia, but only the privileged people get to send their children to medical school. But God opened doors, and she got into medical school. And when she got into class, they, the kids were sharing back and forth. They said, what does your dad do? And the, most of the other dads were government officials, or they owned businesses, and they were high-ranking government officials. And when they said, this one girl, her name was Sway Owen, they said, uh, Sway Owen, what does your dad do? And he said, I'm an orphan. My dad's an orphanage director. They laughed at her. They said, no orphan goes to medical school. And she said, for the longest time, they refused to believe I was a, actually an orphan. And he came from an, an orphanage. So it was one of the coolest things that the Lord's done. Anyway, she ended up marrying a guy from Pennsylvania. He went back on a missions trip and ended up, they fell in love and he married her. It was great. And so two of my, one married a foreigner and the other guys, our girls getting ready to marry another foreigner. So it's kind of cool to see that. So some of the things I've learned, I want to share with you. I've learned that your ability to be used by the Lord has little to do with your ability. It has little to do with that. You want to be used by God, don't count on your ability. The Lord will go out of his way to make sure you can't do it your own on your own. He will make sure that you will fail without him. He will make sure that you can't please him without walking by faith. And being able to be used by God and experience the miraculous, it changes us. It changes you. I have, I have seen the Lord do the miraculous many times. But every time the, God, the Lord allowed me to participate and be a part of the miraculous, I never once walked into it knowing what was going to happen. Every time it was like, oh, no, what am I going to do? And I would just show up and pray, oh, please, God, I don't know what to do. And then the Lord would show up and the miraculous would happen. And it would be like, oh, my gosh. I never once went into it knowing what was going to happen. In fact, usually, I felt that I had missed God, I had screwed up, or somehow I, was, I had got myself in over my head. And I want you to understand <clears throat> if you want to be used by the Lord, be willing to be put in a position where you don't have answers, where you're not sure where God's going to show up. I have learned that walking by faith is the spice of life. You want to know what it means to enjoy your life? Learn to walk by faith. The best description I can give you is this. 
learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. I can't tell you how many times the Lord has put me in a position where I was just like, oh no, what have I done? I can't tell you how many times as a missionary I have walked into a situation and I'm thinking to myself, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. Culturally, you're completely caught off guard. Language-wise, I can't tell you how many times I, I would, a guy would speak to me and I would say, I haven't the slightest idea what he just said. Language sometimes, little children, like, they're, what did you say? Older people and little children are the hardest to understand. And so I'm walking into a village and somebody runs up to me and says, blah, 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 and I'm like, and I'm, I'm in charge and I have no idea what he just said. And I'm like, okay, and we just follow the guy. I have no idea what we're doing. Oh my gosh. I built three huge schools in Cambodia, three, three story schools, huge schools. I've never built a thing in my life. And they, I showed up and they said, oh, by the way, we need you to do some things. Some, one time, this is kind of funny how God works. One time, a multimillionaire is visiting Cambodia, and he visit, and he's with my friend, and he shows up, and, and he just says to me, out of the, we're just talking, and he says to me, Mark, he says, uh, what's that over there? And there's a wall that separates the orphanage from this public school, and I'm like, oh, that's a public school, that's not mine. And he said, I understand that, but he said, what is that over there? And I was like, oh, is there, you know, there's 1,500 children, there's no toilets, there's no electricity, the teachers are so poor that they, they literally extort money from the children. You have to pay to get, to get into the classroom. You have to buy your homework assignment. You have to buy it from the teacher. And the teachers are, don't have homes, so they live in the classroom. And they raise their family in the classroom, and they just cook their food and flick all the garbage out the window. So outside of every classroom is just mountains of garbage. And I said, oh, it's a mess. What little I do, do I have any idea what he thinks? No, I have no idea. He said to me, Mark, is it anybody helping them? And I'm like, no, nobody's helping them. And I thought to myself, why would you? It's a government school. Who cares about them? But I'm a missionary. You're not supposed to say stuff like that. <laughs> so I said, oh, no, nobody's helping them. And I'm, I'm thinking, I, I have an orphanage here. I have enough problems. I don't want to help them. That's, but I didn't say that. And he said to me, Mark, what do you think it'd cost to build a school for them? So I'm like, Pfft. I said, actually, what I said was, they can't be helped. It's hopeless. That's what I said. And he said to me, oh, come on. Anybody can help them. What do you think it costs to build a building? And I said, so I went like this. Oh, I don't know, $100,000, $125,000, which in Cambodia is a lot of money. You can hire somebody for $2 a day. And so I said, $100,000, $125,000. He said to me, oh, that's nothing. Now, I have no idea who this man is. He just happened to be standing there next to my friend. <laughs> so on we go with a tour of the orphanage. At the end of the tour, they leave, and I, I'm like, next, you know, I, I have visitors come all the time. I don't think anything of it. About a, a, two weeks later, I get an email from my friend. He said, remember that guy you talked to? No. <laughs> He's decided that he wants you to help that school. He's going to send you $100,000. I couldn't even remember what he looked like. I couldn't remember his name. He sent me $100,000. And the worst part of it was that at this public school next to the orphanage, my staff said to me, Papa, are you going to help them? They hate you. This is why they hate me. I pulled all my kids out of that public school. They're so corrupt. They were so dishonest. And they demanded money from my kids. And it made me so angry. 
that I pulled, I just didn't even ask anybody. I hired some teachers, used some existing classroom space, pulled kids out of the public school and said, you're not going to that school anymore. It's so bad. I want you to go to my own school. I'm just going to create a school out of thin air. And the po they said to me, Papa, why can't we go to school? I said, your teachers are nothing but a bunch of thugs and thieves. So when they, they quit going to school, they, they said, I, I'm not going to school here anymore. The teacher said, well, why not? My Papa said, you're a thug and a thief. <laughs> It was not one of my better movements. It was not one of the smarter things I've done. And so anyway, I figured they hate me and I don't care about them. I didn't tell this man any of this had happened. So now he sends me $100,000 and I have to help them build a school and they hate me. So I have to go over there and my staff said to me, you're going to help them? They hate you. I don't know what else to do. It's his money. I'm too embarrassed to tell him what happened, so I'm going to help him. So I built a school. And they said, I give the, the look on their face was priceless. They were like, you're going to really help us? And I'm like, yeah, this man, you don't know. Send me the money. I'm going to build a school for you. And I could see the look on her face. She's like, well, you can put the building right there. She doesn't believe for a minute I'm going to actually do it. But it was his money. I didn't know what else to do. I wanted him to give me the money to build my own school. But no, he gave the money to give these people. So I have to build a school for them. So I built this huge school, huge school. It's a massive facility. It turns out to be the nicest school in the entire southern half of Cambodia. So much so that they made it the national testing center for the whole nation, the whole southern half of Cambodia. <laughs> then the teachers all get together and they, have, they said, we want to have a school opening ceremony. I'm like, okay, whatever. They said, just show up on this day. So I show up, 3,000. 500 people are at this ceremony. It's televised on national television. The speaker is the Secretary of State for the nation. And I stood on the platform and he pinned a gold medal on my chest. And he said to me right to my face, he said, Mark, I pin this near your heart because you have the people of Cambodia in your heart. I never dreamed I'd ever hear that. And after the ceremony, all, all the teachers that came from the other schools in the city were asking the teachers that, that taught at that school, isn't that the guy that you hate? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. And they said, well, why is he helping you? And they're like, we don't know. <laughs> the truth is, I didn't know. And so the ceremony it came and went, and I'm like, whatever. I don't know why God did that. And then and about a week later, one of my staff came to my house and said, Papa, I have something to tell you. And I'm like, yeah, what? And she said to me, last night or yesterday, she said last night, one of the director of the school came to my house. I've known her my whole life. She's always spoken very derogatory to me, very down, very critical of my faith in Jesus. But last night she came to my house late at night and asked me for a Bible. And she asked me questions about Jesus. And then she said this. She said, yesterday we had a meeting of all the teachers in the school. There was 43 teachers at that school. And they talked amongst themselves and they said, in Cambodia, no one helps their enemies. We don't understand why Papa would help us when he knew we hated him. So we have decided corporately as a group that if Jesus is like him, when he comes back from America, I was leaving to go to America, when he comes back from America, we would like to know more about his God. I never dreamed I would ever hear anything like that. 
I'm going to share one more thing and then I'll quit. <laughs> when I quit my job, I worked at a corporation that was a $200 million company with 700 employees. And when I got ready to quit, I thought, you know, I don't want to leave and tell people I'm going to be a missionary and, oh, you're one of the, you know, holier-than-thou kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to quit. Nobody will know what happened to me. Well, that didn't work. Somebody told somebody who told somebody. <laughs> you know, there's 700 employees, and suddenly everybody seems to know that Mark Bowman's quitting his job to go be a missionary in Cambodia. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, I can't believe everybody knows. I, I tried to keep it a secret. It just didn't work. And so people came up to me and shocked me, and they stopped me in the hallway, and they called me in my office, or they came by, and they stopped me, and they said to me, Mark, I hear you're quitting your job to be a missionary in Cambodia. And I'm thinking, oh, no, here it comes. And, and I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know what to think. And they stuck their hand out, and they shook my hand, and they said, Mark, man, I envy you. Congratulations. I wish I was doing something like that. It never entered my mind. And one man caught me in the hallway. He said to me, Mark, you're doing something every one of us here wish we could do but are afraid to. That never entered my mind. About two weeks later, I was just thinking about that. I don't know why. I was just thinking about it. When all of a sudden, I can't describe what this was like. This is the best description I can give you. Suddenly, instantly, I was standing. I, don't, I was awake, and I was looking out my regular normal eyes, but suddenly, I was within as, as if I was doing this, but I was standing out looking. I don't understand it. It was like an open vision. I don't get it, but it just happened. I was suddenly standing in a large prison, like a medieval prison. They were, there, it was a stone walls. Uh, stone floor and it was cold dark and damp and there were people sitting on the floor all around me and I was standing up amongst them and they were looking up to me and their arms were outstretched and they were shaking my hand and they kept saying to me congratulations Mark you are leaving the prison I wish I was like you I envy you you're so lucky and I'm thinking, I'm saying to them, oh, thank you, thank you. No, the truth is, I did not know why I was leaving the prison, but somehow I knew I was leaving. And I kept saying that to me over and over again, and I kept shaking their hand. And I started to walk out, and there was a room to my right, and there were people in it who had given up all hope of ever leaving that prison. They did not look at me. There was no acknowledgement that I was leaving. It was like, don't even talk to me. I don't even want to know what can be done. And the next instant, I was standing outside the prison, and it happened so fast, it actually startled me because I couldn't figure out. I didn't go through any doors, nothing like that. I was just, boom, outside the prison. <clears throat> and I couldn't figure out how come I got out of the prison so quickly that I actually, <clears throat> I actually stopped and I turned around to look back because I couldn't figure out why I got out of the prison so quickly. And when I turned around and I looked back, I realized there was no door in the prison and there were no bars on the window. And the people that were in the prison, they could have got out of there any time that they wanted. And when I saw that, the Lord spoke to me. He said to me, that's what it's like for people that are afraid to step out in faith. That when the Bible says the truth shall set you free, there's great depth in that. The Bible says whom the Son has set free is free indeed. I never realized that the people that were in that prison were there for one reason. They believed a lie. Satan told them, you don't have what it takes to be used by God to do the impossible, to do the miraculous. Other people can do it. They're the gifted. They're the talented. They're the kinds of people that God will use. 
and they believe that lie. And you know, I've learned, I can promise you, it's not because I'm gifted or talented. The truth was, I've, I've come to believe that God goes out of his way to use people that are broken, that have nobody else would choose. You gotta remember, David wasn't even invited to the party. If you know what I'm talking about. My experience has been, God goes out of his way to use people that no one else would pick. Stand with me, please. I want to challenge you this evening. My experience has been that God wants to use you to change the course of history and the lives of people where he is going to send you. You are a part of the last generation. The greatest miracles, even greater than what happened in the book of Acts, you are going to see firsthand. Remember when Jesus, he uh, gave, did turn the water into wine, and the guy said, you saved the best for last. That's the kingdom of God principle there. The best for last is your generation. Let me, let me tell you a couple things. I have spoken in some of the largest churches in America. I have traveled a great deal. I've been in churches where the people didn't even look at me. They looked at the screen, big 60-foot screens on the wall. Sometimes when people look at you, when you go to a big church, they look at you like somehow you figured it out. Somehow you read the right book. Somebody prayed this magic prayer over you. Somehow there was something that you possess that they don't possess and that you have what it takes to walk by faith. And they're looking for that one thing that suddenly you, that they don't have, and they're trying to find it. I want to share something with you, which, which very, was difficult for me to understand, but it, I want you to understand this concept. And, and this is what I want you to catch. It's not what you possess. It's what you give up. I'm going to say it again. It's not what you possess. It's what you're going to give up. You give the Lord your life. It's not what you give. It's what you don't give. You want to change the course of history. You want God to use you in a way that your children will say, I wish I was like my dad or my mom, because they're going to talk about the things that you can share, the things that God has done through you. That experience is priceless, and it will be the greatest legacy you will pass down. It's not going to be the money you give them or whatever, all those other things. Nah, that's a bunch of garbage. The truth is a testimony of the miraculous, of the things you have experienced firsthand. That will be the thing that they will carry with them and that they will hang on to. And they're going to say, I wish I was like my dad or I wish I was like my mom. And so this is what I want to challenge you. Make it your mission to become intimate with him. There's no such thing as the miraculous without the intimacy. Intimacy is the, is the key to the, to the doorway. You want to experience things that I've learned that when God reveals himself, it transforms us. And the miraculous happens because we know him and we spend time with him. This isn't the McDonald's drive-up window version. You don't just show up and expect a, a quick blessing and, and, and you drive off. The Lord wants to spend time with you and he wants to make his presence so real in your life 
that people will say, I wish I was like you. I've spoken in churches and people will look at me and, and they, they want to ask this question, but they don't know how. They want to ask, how come you know him the way that you do? I could share stories for hours about the miraculous things I have seen. But I want to tell you this. If you want to experience the miraculous, spend time in his presence. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to press the Lord. I want you to have something in your heart that's important to you that you will hang on to and say, Lord, this is important to me. I want this. Like Jacob hung on to that angel and said, I will not let go until you've blessed me. I want you to have something that you can say to the Lord. God, this is important to me. I want this. And I am willing to give you that part of my life to make it happen. Awesome. Thanks so much. I know that we went a little bit over time than what we normally do, but thanks, guys, for hanging out. It was worth it, right? Weren't those amazing stories? That was so fun. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for coming and hanging out with us. This man just had surgery on Monday, and he came and preached to us anyways. So make sure to say hi to him, and uh, we love you guys. Have a good night, and we will see you guys later.